This evening we're going to consider the testing of Abraham after his call. And we're looking at Genesis chapter 12 verse 10 through to verse 20, the end of the chapter. The first nine verses of Genesis chapter 12 deal with God's call of Abraham to leave his country, his kindred and his father's house and go where? Go to a land that God will show him. Attached to that call was a promise as can be seen in verses 2 and 3. This is a recap but uh, it's such an important recap. Uh, Let's have a look at verses 2 and 3. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. We looked at that promise in some detail last time, and because of its immense and continuing importance, I can't resist quickly going through it again. I I couldn't resist it this morning. I felt the need, the opportunity arose for me to mention it this morning. I think that's all because we've been looking at it in, in detail on Wednesday evenings and it all seems to come together and it's the, the the thread of that promise. It just runs through all the pages of the Bible and it reaches us now. Uh, how many years later? 4,000 years later, this promise is still very much in force. In the first instance, the promise to Abraham resulted in his physical descendants, the children of Israel, being chosen by God out of all the nations of the earth to be his special people. As the Lord said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 through to 8. Thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God have chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, listen to this bit now, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, this is a reference to the promise that was given to Abraham in the first instance. Because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, Have the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen or slaves from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Consequently, the Lord, Jehovah God, having promised to make of Abraham a great nation, we see that there in the beginning of verse 2, I will make of thee a great nation, Having promised to make of Abraham a great nation, he delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt uh, 433 years after the promise was given. The Israelites were taken out of slavery and God made a covenant with them. 
Alas, they rebelled against God's laws and they did not keep his covenant. However, it can be seen in the next verse, in verse 3, that the promise was made to Abraham. And when we look elsewhere, such as in chapter 15 of Genesis and chapter 27, I think, various places we see that the promise was made to Abraham and to his seed. And it is the promise was made to Abraham and his seed that all, all families of the earth would be blessed. In our last study, it was seen that Abraham's seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mediator of a new covenant. And all the families of the earth doesn't refer to literally every single family in the earth, but it refers to people from all nations of the earth who are trusting in Jesus as their saviour, believing that he has perfectly kept God's law in life, And he laid down his own life at the cross as an atonement for their sins. They have redemption in his blood, even the forgiveness of what? All their sins, past, present and future. And they shall receive a heavenly inheritance when the risen Saviour comes again in judgment. Do you see what I mean? It's a promise that's worth repeating. It's worth having a recap because... If you're a Christian here, then God has, you are part of this covenant, a covenant which requires perfect obedience and that perfect obedience was rendered by the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. And consequently, you stand before God, accepted in his beloved Son, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Moving on to today's Bible passage, it can be seen in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10 that there was a famine in Canaan, the land of promise that Abraham had gone to. This is the place where God said that he would go to the land that I will show you. It's the land of Canaan. And in obedience to God, Abraham went there and there was a famine in the land. Look, Let's have a look at verse 10 again. And there was a famine in the land and Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was grievous in the land. Famine means hunger. And not only was there hunger in Canaan, it was grievous. In other words, it was great. They were starving. Consequently, Abraham, who was with his wife Sarai, he was with his nephew Lot, and with all the men that worked for him, they went down into Egypt because of this grievous famine. Ordinarily, Canaan, the land of promise, it was a fertile land. You only have to think about what happened 430 years later when when Israel, sorry, Israel was spying out the land and spies were sent into the promised land of Canaan and they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes and it required two of the spies to carry that one cluster of grapes upon a pole. You can only imagine that must have been a massive cluster of grapes. 
They brought some of the fruit back to the back to the Israelite camp, along with their report. They said to the Israelites, "We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it." As they showed that cluster of grapes and whatever whatever else they had with them, so it was a fertile land, ordinarily. However, as can be seen in verse 10, Abraham and all whom he was responsible for were experiencing great hunger in Canaan and consequently he made the decision to go down into Egypt. The region of Egypt, certainly the region that surrounds the Nile, and I'm no expert on this, but apparently the region of Egypt that surrounds the Nile is very fertile And just as Isaac sent his sons to that land to buy grain, do you remember that account in the Bible when Joseph was second in charge in Egypt under Pharaoh and one day, what is it he saw? He saw his own brothers, the ones who had sold him to slave traders. All those years later, they came into Egypt because their father Jacob had sent them to get grain. Why was that? Because there was famine in Canaan. And and as we see here in our passage for today, Abraham did precisely the same thing. He went into Egypt because there was food there and uh, there was a famine in Canaan. It would be very easy at this point to judge and to condemn Abraham for not staying in Canaan, the land of promise, for not simply trusting in God to meet his need and everyone else's need for food, all the people who were with him. However, it's as well to see what saith the scriptures, because we can all harbour thoughts, I wouldn't do that, I would have done this, I would have done that, how could Abraham have done that? Let's see what the what the Bible says. And in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, there's quite a lot to say about Abraham, not about his failure to trust in the Lord, not about his unbelief, but rather his faith. Chapter 11 of Hebrews is the chapter of faith in the Bible. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, it is written, by faith, emphasis on that, by faith, He, that's Abraham, sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So, in fairness to the father of the faithful, Abraham, that's what the Bible calls him, the father of the faithful, There's nothing in these verses to suggest that he lost sight of his calling or that he lost sight of the promises of God. He could have very easily returned to his homeland in Mesopotamia, but he didn't. If Abraham was not trusting the Lord to sustain him and his wife Sarai and all the others who were with him, The Bible doesn't speak about it. The Bible is silent on this matter. So we need to tread very carefully. So Abraham's faith isn't really 
in question here. It's safer to say that he did what he had to do and that he and his wife and all the others with him did not starve to death. The Bible does not condemn us for taking reasonable care of ourselves and of others. I'll leave it at that. Also, we can consider Abraham's conduct. That might help us a little bit if we consider Abraham's conduct. After all, a person's words and his conduct, his conduct, they speak volumes, don't they? How we behave, what we do, what we say, tells us a lot about someone and whether a person really is trusting in God or not. When the unbelieving Israelites, and I, I emphasise unbelieving, they really were unbelieving by and large, certainly there was a believing remnant amongst the Israelites, but by and large they were unbelieving. And you read about that first generation of Israelites who were miraculously brought out of Egypt. That first generation, all but two of them, perished in the wilderness because of unbelief. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, having been delivered out of misery, out of slavery in Egypt, how did they respond when they were hungry? Shamefully, they moaned as they said to Moses and the high priest Aaron, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Let's be very clear about something. Ultimately, who were they moaning against? Who were they complaining to? Was it Moses? Was it his brother, the high priest? Not at all. Their their moans were directed against God, who had delivered them from misery. We don't see any of that when it comes to Abraham. When we look at the Israelites in the wilderness, we're not um, reading between the lines if we say they were an ungrateful bunch they were unbelieving, it's, it's clear that they were, and we're told as much. There are no guessing games there, no conjecture or anything. When it comes to Abraham, if there is anything, I've, I've missed it, I haven't seen it. All I've seen is that he was a man of great faith, and that he is the father of the faithful. So again, let's we're, we'll move on and tread very carefully here. There was certainly no moaning that can be seen coming from the mouth of Abraham and that in itself indicates that he was trusting in the Lord despite heading down towards Egypt. And there is a clue in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 12 that indicates that Abraham's faith had not evaporated and that he had not abandoned his calling. It says there in verse 12, that he went down into Egypt to sojourn there. That word sojourn, I I don't know if you've got a different version of the Bible, you might have a different word, but I've got to sojourn there. That means that he went to Egypt to dwell there for a time as a stranger. And I might add, for good reason, because there was nothing to eat in Canaan at the time, and he had his wife 
and everyone else to think about. I find what John Calvin said to be very helpful because I was struggling with this passage. Calvin said, Abraham nevertheless retained in his mind possession of the land promised unto him. Although, being ejected from it by hunger, he fled elsewhere for the sake of obtaining food. It's it's not something you can argue with that, is it? When Abraham received promises of great blessings, having been called by the Lord, perhaps he never imagined at that time that he would encounter so much affliction and, and famine, a grievous famine. But that is precisely what he got. And the trials that you can expect are just the same. You can expect trials if you are a Christian trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't get any special exemptions. You're not excused all the trials and tribulations um, of this world. However, there is a difference. If you are trusting in Christ as your Saviour, it's important to understand that as a dearly beloved child of God, being a Christian means that God really, really is your Father in heaven, a loving Father, never forget that. And the trials and tribulations that you experience are given to you by your heavenly Father, he graciously gives you these, these these trials and tribulations to build you up, to strengthen you in your faith and to draw you ever closer to the God of your salvation. Because that's what we need really. If everything was just wonderful all the time, we probably wouldn't give God a thought. Or we would have such a, a twisted and distorted and erroneous understanding of God if everything just went wonderfully well all the time we're undergoing as Christians we're undergoing this progressive sanctification Jesus prayed to his father in John's gospel sanctify them by thy word thy truth thy, thy truth thy word is truth and we're sanctified by the word of God and we're also, we see that we're sanctified as we undergo various tribulations because tribulation works experience. In other words, what do you do as a Christian when you go through tribulations? You look to God. You wouldn't do if you weren't a Christian, but you look to God in times of tribulation and that in itself is a very positive thing. And that is something to praise God for, that you are looking to him. To be with you. To be with you in whatever furnace God has chosen to put you in. Or whatever he chooses to do with you. As the Apostle Paul said, All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And the things that work together for good, to them that love God, the things that work together for good for Christians, God's children, they in themselves may not seem very good at the time. They work together for good, but they can be, they can be painful at the time. Very bitter trials indeed. Well, have a look at verses 11 through to 14 in our passage. 
And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said unto Sarai, his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with thee, uh, with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abraham was come unto Egypt, into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour from sin, then like King David of old, you ought to be able to testify that the Lord is your shepherd, that he makes you lie down in green pastures. I always love that. You don't, you, you're, you don't have the good sense to lie down in green pastures. Jesus makes you lie down, again, for your own good. He makes you lie down in green pastures. You have the testimony that he leads you beside quiet waters, still waters. He leads you in that path of righteousness and so on. That is a testimony of being at peace, having been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus. Even so, as as has been seen in verse 10, that walk of faith is not always an easy one. Abraham, he had famine to contend with. It's by no means a walk in the park, being a Christian. The Apostle Paul said, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. You're to let all your anxieties known unto God. Commit them all to God in prayer. There's nothing too small, nothing seemingly too insignificant to commit to God in prayer and there's nothing too big, too great to commit to God in prayer. You'd have to wonder just how much prayer was committed to God by Abraham and I'm not referring so much to his decision to go down to Egypt and to sojourn there. We've moved on from that part of the passage but I'm looking in particular Uh, His plan, that plan that he concocted in order to save his life. You'd have to wonder how much prayer had gone into that. Sarai was his wife and although she was 65 years old or more, I don't know how long they'd already been in the promised land since receiving the promise. When When he received the promise, he was 75, she was 65 before we know, she was maybe a, a little bit older by now. But anyway, she was about 65 years old. She was nevertheless a fair woman to look upon. In other words, she was beautiful. And Abraham feared that if the Egyptians found out that she was his wife and they desired to have her, they would kill him first rather than take another man's wife. Yeah? So what did he do? Abraham's master plan was for Sarah to say to the Egyptians that she was his sister. The Egyptians would still have 
still have her if they wanted, but at least they wouldn't kill Abraham. His life would be spared. Be no reason to kill him anymore if they didn't know that uh, he was married to her. That was a well-rehearsed plan, having first been conceived by Abraham when he left his father's house with Sarah. That information is given in chapter 20 and verse 13, where Abraham said, And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said unto her, unto Sarah, This is thy kindness which thou shalt show unto me, at every place whither we shall come. Say of me, he is my brother. A well-rehearsed plan there, wasn't it? It wasn't as if Abraham was asking his wife to tell an outright lie. According to chapter 20 and verse 12, she was his half-sister. They had the same father, different mothers but the same father. Even so, it was deceitful to say that they were not married when they were married. And that was the whole point of that plan, to pretend that they weren't married in order that Abraham's life would be spared. Although Abraham's plan offered protection for him, it did not shield his wife. In fact, if anything, it left Sarah even more at risk of being taken and abused because the Egyptians would have been led to believe that she was unmarried. All the more reason to take her. Let's have a look at verse 15. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Abraham's fears about the Egyptians were soon proven to be reasonable when the palace officials saw how beautiful his dear wife was. They wasted no time in taking her to the king, presumably to earn favour with him by accommodating to his lust, to pandering to him. Look at this lovely lady that we brought for you. Pharaoh then showered gifts upon Abraham, believing him to be Sarai's brother, and that would probably have been payment to him for her hand in marriage. If it were not for divine intervention, Sarah would no doubt have been consigned to the king's harem at that point. As it turned out, God did intervene, and as can be seen in verse 17, the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai's, Sarai, Abraham's wife. In Psalm 105, verses 12 through to 15, we see the following words concerning God's protection of Abraham and the other patriarchs of Israel. It's written in Psalm 105 that when they were but a few men in number, yea, very few and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. You see the level of protection that God is able to give to his anointed, to his people, his chosen ones. 
By way of application, although Christians need not expect any deliverance from earthly enemies, the Lord is well able to intervene when his redeemed are in danger. And as we see here, God is able to redeem not just Abraham, but let's apply this to us, any one of us in here, as God's dearly beloved children. He is able to deliver you even from rulers of this world, even from despotic kings. No reason why not. God has already delivered you from the greatest enemy of all, from sin, from Satan, from death. He has delivered your life from hell's destruction. So it's nothing for God to deliver you from the rulers of this world, as indeed he delivered Abraham and Sarai from Pharaoh. Finally, Abraham was with good reason rebuked by a pagan king. Look at verses 18 through to 20. And Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidst thou, She is my sister, so I might have taken her to me to wife? Now therefore behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Somehow or other, Pharaoh found out that Sarai was Abraham's wife. Perhaps the great plagues caused him to make inquiries and Sarai confessed all to him. I don't know. He then called for Abraham and upbraided him before sending him and Sarai away. On reflection, Abraham's original fears were reasonable. After all, upon his arrival in Egypt, the Egyptians did see Sarai's beauty and she was taken from him to the palace, at which point he may well have thought to himself, well, if they knew that she was my wife, they would have surely killed me and taken her anyway. And then the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues which Abraham may well have seen as vindication and approval from God for the plan that he had concocted. And finally, Abraham and Sarai lived to tell the tale, but we're still left with Abraham being upbraided, being rebuked by a pagan king. It seems that the Lord was very gracious to Abraham, preserving his life and his marriage to Sarai, preserving Sarai's life without her being defiled by Pharaoh or any other man for that matter. And that was not because of Abraham's ill-conceived plan with its half-truths, but in spite of it. And not least of all because of the promise that the Lord had made. That promise still held that in Abraham and his seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed nothing was going to change that nothing was going to bring that promise to a premature end that promise was non-negotiable it would be most certainly fulfilled in Abraham's seed the Lord Jesus Christ through whom every spiritual blessing is received Perhaps you're still wondering just how much Abraham cast his care upon the Lord in prayer, 
if at all. Unlike his seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, who committed everything to God in prayer. Again, I'm being very careful what I say about Abraham, but at the end of the day, what I will say is our our example must be the Lord Jesus Christ here, our Saviour. Even though Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, and he is infinitely wise, he nevertheless prayed that his Father's will be done. When you read the Gospels, you get the impression that Jesus spent so much time in prayer. Even before uh, appointing his apostles, he spent the whole night in prayer. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus was crucified, we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, that he prayed, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. At the time that Jesus prayed that prayer, he was in agony and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. One might reasonably say that the sinless Son of God did not relish the prospect of drinking the cup of sin and having the iniquity of Abraham and everyone else whom he came to save, laid upon him. So he prayed about it. Humanly speaking, Jesus did not want to bear all that sin. He is the Holy One of God. Holy, harmless, undefiled, set apart from sinners. And now he's exalted above the heavens the sinless saviour and he sweat as it were great drops of blood at the prospect of being sin bearer bearing our iniquities having our iniquity laid upon him by his father at the cross emphasis on that uh, you know how often do you hear about this swap that went uh, at the cross what a lot of nonsense that is Jesus gave us his righteousness, which he did, but we gave him our sin. We didn't do anything. God laid on him our iniquity. Simple as that. And we receive his righteousness. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 come to mind. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. That starts with you first and foremost, most importantly of all, trusting in Jesus as a repentant sinner. Trusting in him for the forgiveness of sins and for everlasting life. That has to be the first thing you do. From that time on, look to him in prayer each and every day. Doesn't matter what it is, again. And one can only think, did Abraham really commit this to God in prayer? This plan that he devised here. I don't know the answer to that. But if he did at all, I think we, we, what we can learn from this is we really need to commit everything to God in prayer. 
And if we get rebuked by pagans, let it be for the right things. Let it be because we are proclaiming the name of Jesus and living righteously and uh, seeking to glorify him. And not because we're we're trying we're, we're causing some kind of deception or anything to God be the glory in everything that we say and do as people trusting in his son amen